Uh, to begin our third session, uh, I want you to imagine a scenario with me. Uh, imagine that there is a man waking up one day, and he brushes his teeth, eats his breakfast, gets ready for the day, and heads out through his front door, but he finds a little surprise on his front doormat. There, square on the mat, is a crisp $100 bill left there, and it was clearly for him. And he looks around, picks up the $100, and says, thank you, kind stranger, and puts it in his wallet and goes throughout his day. The next day, he does the same routine to get ready, goes out his front door, and there it is again, another $100 bill. He is blown away. I can't believe someone would be so nice. The third day, he wakes up, heads out his front door. Dare I check? And there's another $100 bill waiting for him. The fourth day, he collects his $100, and he begins to think, well, I should spend this. And so he treats himself to a nice steak dinner. The next day, he buys himself a new pair of shoes. And the following day, he starts to do some research on a new laptop. And then the day after that, he actually purchases that laptop. Well, each morning when he picks up his $100, day after day, he is no longer full of wonder and amazement like he was the first few days. Instead, he simply expects the money to be there. He grabs it, stuffs it in his wallet, and goes about his day. Well, two years later, one morning, he opens the front door, and for the first time in these two years, there is no $100 bill there. Well, maybe the wind, uh, he checks around his front porch and... There's no money there. Well, it must be some kind of mistake. Maybe, maybe tomorrow there will be $200 waiting for me. And the next morning he wakes up and eagerly runs down the stairs to check. Nothing. He's devastated. The day after that he wakes up, runs downstairs and checks again. And again, there's no money on his front doorstep. At this point, he gets mad. I can't believe it. Whoever's doing this is just cruel. I mean, I, I got bills to pay. I got expenses. Well, friends, this is a, an illustration of what it's like living in this world that is full of God's grace. Grace that is available to us each and every day. Lamentations 3.22 says, His mercies are new every morning. And so God's grace, his forgiveness, his love is ready for us on our front doorstep whenever we'll receive it. But because it's available all the time, we lose our wonder and amazement. We come to expect it. And perhaps you're, you're not a Christian here today. And you too expect that God's grace is always going to be there for me. And so you put off becoming a Christian, put it off, put it off, put it off, because there's always tomorrow. There's always the opportunity to repent and, and come to God tomorrow, next month, next year. 
Maybe you don't know if you're a Christian. You're not sure where you stand before God. And you've been meaning to, to, to talk to one of the pastors. You've been meaning to talk to your small group leader. You've been, you've been meaning to talk to a spiritual leader to, to figure this all out. You've been meaning to sit down and read the Bible and, and, and great, gain assurance of your salvation. But you haven't done that because you think there's always tomorrow. There's always next week. There's always next month. So we put it off, put it off, put it off, because we expect that, that grace will always be there. Now, to be clear, if you are in Christ, if you are a true Christian, there is always going to be grace for you. There is fresh forgiveness every morning for you. You can always come to God, and he will give you the mercy that he has promised to you. But for you, too, maybe you've been putting something off. I know some of you have talked about evangelism in your discussion groups. You've been putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. There's always, there's always another chance. It's always next Thanksgiving to talk to my family member. It's always tomorrow to talk to that coworker and try to build up that relationship so that I can ask him out and talk about spiritual things. There's always more time in the future. But studying this doctrine of hell reminds us that one day... There will not be a tomorrow. Now, there will not be another opportunity because there is a day when grace extended toward the unbeliever will end. A day when the Lord will not be found and where non-Christians will not be able to call upon his name. So tonight we're going to continue our study of that graceless place called hell. Uh, just a, a theological note before we begin, as we continue looking at seven characteristics of hell, uh, we talked about two heavens, a temporary heaven and an eternal heaven, uh, called by theologians as the intermediate state versus the eternal state. And really, probably the better way to look at it is two phases of heaven. So heaven is as it exists now, is temporary. It is an intermediate state. This is where Christians go after they pass away. And as we saw, the temporary heaven, as it exists now, is awesome. It is a sinless place, holy place. Jesus is there. You see him face to face. A place of rest, a place called Jesus that Jesus called paradise. So it's amazing. And, and, and this first phase will then give way to the second phase, which we studied in Revelation 21, the eternal state, the new earth, which will be like the temporary heaven in all of its perfections, but even better, the main difference being that you now have a physical body after the resurrection to enjoy the physical heaven called the new earth. Well, in the same way, there is a parallel with hell. There is phase one and there is phase two. Hell as it exists now, the, the temporary hell, you might call it, is what we've been talking about. But again, all of the characteristics that we've been talking about with hell transition over to phase two, which Revelation calls the lake of fire. And so the lake of fire has all the same horrors of the, the current hell, the temporary hell, but it's even worse. Because at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, the unbelievers are also resurrected in their bodies to physical life and thrown into the lake of fire 
where they will suffer now in a physical way. And so the lake of fire is, is like hell, just much, much worse. So we're going to continue through these seven characteristics that apply to both hell as it exists now and the lake of fire. Uh, we saw eternal fire, God's absence, and at the same time, God's presence, conscious torment, and then number five, outer darkness. Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you imagine hell in your mind, I wonder if you're imagining it, it pitch black. Because that's what it's like. It's referred to as darkness. Uh, you can wave your hand in front of your face and you won't see it. Oh, you can hear the screams of agony. You can feel the burn from the flames. You can smell the, the burning sulfur, but you can't see anything. It is described as darkness. Uh, I went on a missions trip to Japan with uh, Tim Jin, actually, and we did some college ministry where we went to these uh, clubs where the students wanted to learn English, and we'd speak English with them, and we're able to talk about Christ, able to talk about what we believed. And uh, these Japanese students had very little background in their understanding of Christianity, had barely heard the name Jesus before. And so we had to start with the very basics, and on top of that, there's a language barrier. And so uh, for a lot of them, what, it, what I decided to do to try to, to simplify the gospel was to bring in the concept of heaven and hell. And so I did my best with this one college student who I became friends with, and I described heaven for him, I described hell for him, and I said, you need to place your faith in Jesus, and then you'll be able to go to this, this amazing place that, that I described called heaven, and you can avoid going to hell. And I said, what, what do you think, man? What do you think? He responded with, I want to go to hell. That's okay. It's my bad, my bad. I didn't explain that right. Language barrier. Let me try again. So I describe heaven again. Describe hell again. And I say, okay, like, what do you think about all that? And he said, again, I want to go to hell. And I said, okay, man, you got you to gotta explain why you're saying that. And he said, well, if, if everything you're saying is true, then my ancestors who did not believe in Jesus are now in hell. And I want to be with them. Now, if you know anything about uh, Japanese culture, there's influence of Buddhism and Shinto. And in both of those religions, they venerate ancestors, at times even worship ancestors. And so it would be an absolute disgrace if you don't want to be with your ancestors in the afterlife. So the, the goal is to be reunited with them. And uh, I, I then laid this on him. I said, hey, Jesus describes hell as outer darkness. So you're going to be there with your your, your family and your ancestors, but you're, you're probably not even going to be able to see them. It's pitch black down there. Do you still want to? Do you still want to be there? And he said, "Yes, it's the honorable thing to do." And I said, "Okay, let me give you another one." And I gave him number six on our list, and that is that hell is something like solitary confinement. 
I want to make the case that being in hell is similar to being in solitary confinement. Not exactly like it, not exactly what a a prisoner would experience in solitary confinement, but it kind of has the same feel to it. First of all, the New Testament frequently describes hell as a prison. Revelation 9, 1-2 calls hell a bottomless pit that requires a key to open. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. So hell is a pit that this angel can open using a key. Revelation 20, 1 to 3, also calls hell an abyss that again can be locked and unlocked with a key. So hell is something of a prison that you can be locked into. Secondly, Paul uses an interesting word to describe hell in Romans chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says there will be tribulation and distress. That's the key word that we're going to focus on. For every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Now in the original language in the Greek, this word for distress refers to a narrow space, a confining space. So Paul's saying for everyone who does evil, your eternal punishment is being confined to hemmed into, crammed into a small, narrow space. And there are plenty of other Greek words that Paul could have chosen to describe general anguish, general pain. But he chooses the specific word that conveys being crammed into a small space. Take that into consideration with the fact that the Bible often associates being in a narrow space with judgment And in contrast, often associates being in a broad, open space with blessing, with salvation. This is a a theme woven throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that makes complete sense, right? Uh, Even if you don't really have claustrophobia, would you rather be crammed into a box? Or would you rather be out there in a big open field to enjoy your freedom? Job 36, for instance, speaks of the relief of being taken out of a trial. Verses 15 to 16, he delivers the afflicted in their affliction and opens their ear in time of oppression. Then indeed he enticed you from the mouth of distress. Now notice there the same word. It's the Hebrew equivalent of the word that we saw in Romans chapter 2, being confined into a narrow space. Verse 16, then indeed he enticed you from the mouth of distress Instead of it, a broad place with no constraint, and that which was set on your table was full of fatness. So being in a trial is described as being in distress, being uh, retained in a small, narrow space, but then being rescued from the trial, being delivered from the trial, is being described here as in a broad space with no constraint. So again, trial Narrow, confining space. No trial, broad, open space. And then one more verse, Psalm nineteen, uh, Psalm 18, 19. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Again, God's rescue and his delighting in the psalmist 
associated with being in a broad place. So you put it all together now. Revelation 9 and 20, hell is like being locked into a prison. Romans 2, 9, hell is being crammed into a narrow, confining space, being hemmed in. And as we saw in Matthew 25, 30, hell is also complete darkness. So in hell, you're in a narrow, confining prison in darkness, which is a lot like what a prisoner would experience in solitary confinement. Uh, again, not saying that it's exactly like what, what hell is like, but it's similar, and that's the picture that we get in Scripture. Uh, solitary confinement is the worst punishment that a prisoner can receive. If you commit a crime, you're thrown into jail with other criminals and other prisoners, but if you don't play nice when you're in jail, if you break the rules in jail, then you get solitary. And I did a, a Google search of solitary confinement, and it was interesting what I came up with. So almost every top hit on Google on the first page was some kind of website dedicated to, or some kind of petition dedicated to abolishing solitary confinement. Because it's too cruel. It's inhumane. It's psychologically damaging. And so a lot of people out there think that it's too severe of a punishment, even for the worst of criminals. But we see that hell is going to be a lot like that. And I told this to my Japanese friend and said, okay, uh, let me lay this on you. You're, you're not only in darkness, but you're going to experience something like solitary confinement, being locked into a dark prison and crammed into a small space. So yes, technically, you will be in the same place as your ancestors and your relatives, but it's very unlikely that you're, they're even going to know you're there or that you know that they're there. Do you still want to go? And he didn't have an answer. Now, hell isn't going to be this big reunion or a big party with your non-Christian friends. That's going to be more like solitary confinement. You just don't want to be there. If that's not enough, let's look at another horror of hell. Number seven, proportional punishments. Proportional punishments. In Matthew eleven twenty one to 24, Jesus is condemning the cities of Judea, the, the, the people that he had been preaching to and performing miracles in front of. He now condemns these cities because they refuse to accept him as the Messiah. Jesus says this, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on these cities of Judea 
who did not believe even though Jesus had performed miracles there. And at the end of the passage, verses 23-24, you see that Jesus compares them to Sodom, this Old Testament city that was notorious for its wickedness and sin and rebellion against God. And Jesus says judgment is going to be more tolerable for even Sodom than for you. Their, their punishment is going to be less severe than yours. Why? Because these cities of Judea had the Son of God come before them. Because these cities of Judea had more revelation than Sodom. Before their very eyes, Jesus healed a paralytic man, said, take up your pallet and walk. And he did. He had resurrected Jairus' daughter to life. He had cast out demons of a demon-possessed man. He healed two blind men by touching their eyes. The people of Judea saw these miracles, undeniable miracles, and they still didn't believe. And they had the preaching of Jesus. They heard sermons from Jesus himself, the greatest preacher who ever lived, and they still did not repent. They had all this revelation, and they didn't believe. So here's the point. The more you know about Jesus, the more responsible you are to believe in him. The more you know about Jesus, the more you learn about Jesus, the more you understand about Jesus, the more revelation you get about Jesus, the more responsible you are to believe in him. And if you still don't believe, then you will suffer the greatest punishment in hell to the degree that you heard gospel truth and still rejected it is the degree of your punishment in hell. There's a proportional punishment here. But notice that the degrees of punishment are not based on how heinous your sin was. It's not that, you know, the murderers get the worst place in hell and then the thieves and then so on and so forth. No, what, what determines how severe your punishment is is how much revelation you had. How much opportunity you had. How much gospel truth you were entrusted with and still rejected it. Hebrews uh, 10, 29 says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and, res- ha- and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For the ones who were told about the Son of God, told about the blood of his covenant, told about the spirit of grace, and yet rejected him, trampled the Son of God himself under their feet, oh, how much more severe will their judgment be? And then Luke twelve forty one to 48 gives a parable of some slaves who work for this master and the master goes off on a journey. The slave, uh, the slaves think that the master's not going to come back for a long, long time. And so they're, they're bad slaves. They're naughty slaves. They eat all the food, they drink all the drink, and they even beat each other up. And then unexpectedly, the master returns. And here's the part of the story that's important for us, verses 47 to 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many 
lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. There's a greater punishment. There were more lashes, more whipping for the slave that knew the master's will but didn't do it. Uh, One pastor has correctly said, the hottest places of hell are reserved for those who knew the truth but didn't obey it. And then William Gurnall says this, very frankly, none sink so deep into hell than those who were closest to heaven because they fall from the greatest height. Now, don't misunderstand here. All of hell is bad. You still get one to six on our list here. You just don't want to be there. But it's even worse for those who knew the truth. And I hope that this creates a special heart, special heartbreak for the people in your life who at one time professed to be Christians and have now walked away. Those who you know, know the gospel. They heard dozens of sermons, hundreds of sermons, maybe in the thousands of sermons, and they walked away from all of it. Uh, I hope you have a special burden for them, uh, these that you know, family and friends, because uh, what we read here is just, just painful. It's just awful that the greatest punishment is reserved for people like that. And I hope that you're seeing that the obvious application of learning about hell is evangelism. If you're hearing about this and and everything that we've been talking about in hell, if you can be in your discussion groups unmoved, then you're not hearing this right. You're not learning the doctrine right. When Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane was just a boy, his mother found him sitting at a windowsill and he was crying, and his mother asked him, what's, what's wrong, Robert? And he replied, Mom, can you hear it? The thump, thump, thump of Christless feet on the way to hell. Mom, can you not hear it? When we're out there in the world, and we encounter non-Christians, you oftentimes don't think about that, Right? They're just going about their day, and you're just going about your day. But for the spiritually sensitive, you see them walking around, and you hear the thump, thump, thump of Christless feet walking toward hell. Every day, about 151,600 people die. Leave this life and enter into eternity. That's about two people every second. Two people every second. Two. Four. Six. Eight. How many do you think know Christ? And how many enter through the portal of hell? where hope must be abandoned. So let's get out there. 
Let's stop putting it off. While there is today the day of salvation, while there still is grace available to anyone who will pick it up off their front doorstep, let's get out there and share Christ. Uh, Let's feel the, the heat under our seats to go out there and be unashamed of the gospel. And let's also be reminded and encouraged and uplifted tonight that this doctrine of hell, though difficult to hear, also accentuates grace. I I hope that as a Christian you appreciate grace even more because this reminds us of what exactly we've been saved from. Right? We give it a head nod, right? Save from sin, save from the wrath of God, save from hell. Give it a head nod. But, you know, as we dive down deep these past couple of sermons, now, now we, we have in, in color, in, in detail, what exactly we were saved from, what we deserved. Uh, the, the hell that we were tiptoeing around, yet we were taken, we were grabbed, we were clung onto by Jesus and pulled to heaven, pulled toward grace brought out of darkness and into marvelous light and so we can praise god today that we've been saved from all of this a bible commentator henry ironside tells an old story uh, during colonial times of a convoy of covered wagons going west toward california to form a new settlement but uh, as this covered wagon a uh, group of, of people, these, these uh, colonial people, were, were headed west. There was a fire that started raging right behind them, right over the hill where they had been. And the whole convoy is thrown into panic. There, there's men, there's women, there's children, there's young families that don't know what to do. And this fire is fast approaching because the wind is blowing it their direction. They don't know what to do until some old man speaks up and says, Quickly, everyone, this way. And he brings them all to a patch of land that had already been burned, already been scorched. There's nothing but ashes in this plot of land. And everyone obeys, and they go to this one plot of land, and the fire creeps up on them closer and closer. The children are screaming as they can feel the flames, and the fire is just consuming all of the grass and hay and shrubs and bushes Uh, around them but once the fire gets to the portion that had already been scorched already been burned it stops and the people lift this old man up as a hero say how'd you know how'd you know we're supposed to go there and he responds with the fire cannot go where it has already been the fire cannot go where it has already been been you see when you come to mount calvary and you stand at the foot of the cross you have come to a place where the fire has already been jesus already experienced a hell called calvary where he where he he experienced anguish and conscious torment where he endured the the forsaking of his own father, the abandonment from God, where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where he experienced punishment and drank the full cup of God's wrath so that you wouldn't have to. When we stand at the foot of Calvary, we stand where the fire has already been and we are safe. 
Uh, we are saved from the wrath of God, delivered. We deserved hell, but we received grace instead. We received heaven instead. And this is a reason to fall down on our knees tonight and praise the one who has saved us. Now let's do that even now. Father, we praise you that Jesus paid it all. That we not, need not worry about hell, judgment, condemnation, though we rightly deserve it. But Jesus has drank down the cup of your wrath in full. And he has absorbed your wrath in full so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be cleansed, so that we, the guilty ones, might go free to be able to live this life in grace, feet held firm by grace, living every day, enjoying mercy, come before your throne confidently. We can do all of this because of the gospel. And we praise you that we'll keep experiencing this grace all the way to heaven where we will enjoy grace like never before and praise you for this grace forevermore. In Christ's name we pray, amen.